They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 35 Down to Us We left episode 34 with a potential breakthrough. Something reported to have been said by Hardy to one of his doctors prior to him ever being suspected of killing anyone in mid-2002. That if true, was as close as you could get to a confession. But, as we know on this podcast, things are never, ever straightforward. Every development is hard-earned, and this was going to prove to be no different. Our problem was that we were having difficulty verifying the authenticity of that claim. That is always very worrying. It casts doubt on that claim. And so far, we haven't been able to validate whether that claim of that conversation is true or not. We're going to continue our work to get to the bottom of that. Our campaign to get the police to conduct isotopic analysis has yielded some very interesting results that have a significant bearing on the case. You'll remember, I had this idea to contact the Police and Crime Commissioner's Office for Staffordshire, the PCC, an elected position occupied by a man called Ben Adams. Well, within 48 hours of me sending him an email, I received an email back from Ben Adams himself which I'll read to you. And it says, Dear Ken, thank you for your email. I appreciated your commitment to find closure and justice for the family of this gentleman. And I agree, it was a terrible, tragic end to his life. Unfortunately, as an operational matter, I don't have the remit to escalate or task on any investigation process, but I'll pass on the details to the Chief Constable's Office for consideration and response. Although, I see you have already contacted the police press office, who will likely do the same. But thanks once again for taking the time to contact my office. Regards, Ben. Well, it must have been my lucky day, because shortly afterwards I received an email from Dan Ison. Now you'll remember him, he's the detective superintendent in the last Crime Watch appeal, for about a year ago. And in fact, he's been the man heading up this inquiry for quite some time now. And in fact, in that email, D.S. Eisen is referred to as the head of major and organised crime, so he must have had a promotion in the meantime. Congratulations, Dan. And that email reads as follows. Good morning, Mr. Davis. Just a quick email to let you know that your correspondence to the PCC has made its way to me, and to thank you for your interest and views. With regard to your specific question in relation to isotopic analysis and its use for this investigation, I'd like to reassure you 
This was considered as an investigative option in 2018. Given the length of time since the body was discovered and the numerous appeals we've placed around it calling for public assistance in identifying the body, we now do not intend on making further appeals for assistance. However, this does not mean that the investigation is concluded. As with all unidentified bodies, undetected homicides, the matter will be subject to periodical reviews to establish if any new lines of inquiry can be pursued. Card regards, Detective Superintendent Dan Ison, Head of Major Unorganised Crime. Now, I went back to him straight after receiving that email and said, it sounds like isotopic analysis was considered but rejected. Could I ask why isotopic analysis was ruled out after consideration? Was it cost? Or was there a specific technical reason why it was not considered worth pursuing? Thanks again, best regards, Ken Davis. And again, pretty swiftly, I got a reply from Dan Eisen. Morning, Ken. With this being a live investigation, I cannot comment further on the rationale for or against the use of certain tactics. However, I can reassure you that isotopic analysis and other up-to-date forensic methods have all been considered and some adopted, as you would have seen with familial DNA work that has been completed. And that's the end of the emails. I did send him another one asking him to come on the podcast. That wasn't responded to. But those emails are very, very interesting. And I've been wanting to get DS Eisen on the podcast from the very, very beginning. But despite a number of requests, that's never been possible to organise. Which is a bit disappointing, given the reach that this podcast has, both in Burton and, of course, much, much wider. But after reading that email, I kind of understand why. So let's unpack those emails and look at them in a bit more detail. There are two key aspects that we can fairly safely conclude from those emails. Firstly, and this is big, there will be no more appeals. That's it. No more requests for assistance. In their words, we now do not intend on making any further appeals for assistance. And given that every recent line of inquiry the police have been following has been gained through appeals, and now there won't be any more of them, that's it. No more lines of inquiry ever again. So they'll only look at this case as part of a historic periodical review in the future. So no one, and I mean absolutely no one, is working in Staffordshire Police on this case on an ongoing basis. That, it seems, is official. And secondly, the isotopic analysis. We all know just how useful it can be, but Staffordshire Police, having considered it, rejected it. Why? It could really only be three things. Cost. They didn't want to spend any money on a 50-year-old case. That could be fair. Secondly, there could be some technical reason why, for some reason, in this case, it couldn't be used. I don't think there is, but it could be. And thirdly, 
they may not have felt that the results would justify the effort. So they find out he's from Hungary. How does that help them? That kind of thinking. By the way, if anyone can think of another reason that they wouldn't do it, let me know. I'm genuinely interested and the hive mind may think of things that I can't think of. But my response to those three things I've identified, cost, well, we'll crowdfund it. I've told them that. If they don't want to raise the cash to do this, I'll do it. Secondly, the technical issues. Now, I've read a lot about isotopic analysis in its use in other cases. I'm not aware of any technical impediment why it couldn't be used in Fred's case. I may be wrong. If I am wrong, let me know. But I don't think so. And the third one, the effort just wouldn't be worth it. The result may tell us he comes from this country, but how does that move us forward? Well, my view on that is, how do you know that until you know the results? You don't know how very specific those results might be able to be. We also know, in many other cases, it's been a very significant step forward. And this is, remember, the longest unsolved crime in Staffordshire history. But those emails do prove one thing, absolutely categorically. The police have officially given up at least in relation to everyday investigation of this case. We kind of knew that, but now we have it in black and white, which means one thing. The only people, the only people who are going to solve this crime is us and you. Absolutely no one else. And in a way, that's fine. In fact, if anything, it makes me even more determined to carry on with the investigation. So, carry on, we will. I needed to catch up with Ian on a few things. He'd been doing more work on the Hardy connection and how we take that forward. But I also wanted his reaction to this police correspondence. Hello Ian, how are you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. All good with you? How, how was France, by the way? Uh, well, France was wonderful, of course. Paris, first time I've been to Paris. Racing was fantastic. We were at that drinks evening beforehand and Frankie Dettori and Jim Crowley both gave us the one that we're going to win on the next day, which we backed, so... And those horses won, then? The ones yep. that... Wow. Very good. I know. It's <laughs> more that can be said for your tip of the last podcast. Just want to mention that. Well, you're saying that, of course, and... A most people would have thought I was talking about that horse running on the day that we were recording. But had you backed that horse yesterday, you would have had a winner. Wow. I know when we spoke last time, you were halfway through this book that you were reading about Hardy, and particularly Hardy, the psychiatrist's perspective on things. I just wondered if, now you've read that, uh, it, was there anything else that came out of that that you think might be of use? Well, before I dive into the book, uh, one thing that I have I've been embarrassed about for at least a fortnight now. Blimey, some... this is going to be a long list. This is Ian. <laughs> no, for some reason, I referred in the last podcast to a book written by um, somebody called Price. And that's just, and I've, I've looked back to see where I got that name from. I have absolutely no idea. That was incorrect. The book that I'm reading is The Mind of a Murderer by Dr. Richard Taylor. 
if there's going to be a million podcasters out there who've been trying to find this book by Dr. Price, yeah. Price. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's number five in the advanced order bestsellers list. <laughs> this but, Dr. Uh, Price has never sold so many books. I know, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> but no, I'm so embarrassed to get that wrong. I have actually reached out on LinkedIn to talk to Dr. Taylor. Um, and I know that he's read that message, although he's not re replied yet. Um, I'm hoping if he listens to the podcast, he, he's been cursing me for two weeks by calling him Price all of the way through it. But now that I've made this apology, I'm hoping that I'll get a response from him. Um, one thing which I am, I'm not sure came out the last time, it's, it's very well written as well, and it, there's a sort of a jeopardy when, as the psychiatrist who did a risk assessment in August, Dr. Taylor hears that Hardy has uh, had body parts discovered in the bins outside his house and a torso in his room. He's, he's worried, um, as he says, when he does a, a risk assessment, you're always a hostage to fortune on that. Mm. Um, and he thought that was coming back to really bite him. But after a long review the psychiatrists involved were all exonerated that they'd made the right decisions based on the information that they had to hand interestingly on that dr taylor identifies there are five psychiatrists who were being looked at their 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 information was reviewed now we know one of them is him mm. suspect the second one is his assistant who mm. is referred to in the book as colin i think and nothing else so Hello, Colin, if you're listening, reach out. Um, but there are three more, uh, and I'm only trying to find out the names of those three so that we can try and approach them to see if any one of those was the psychiatrist who had this boastful comment made to him by Hardy that he had uh, bullied men as a youth and that they would have to be dug up to ask such an intriguing comment. So what we're going to try and do is try and find these five psychologists who were in contact with Hardy just to see if we can talk to any of them and just to explore whether Hardy said anything about his youth to them, which might be useful. I think that'd be a great strand of investigation. Found, we have found the papers, haven't we? We found the report yeah. that came out of that inquiry. Everybody's protected in it because it's a public inquiry and they were exonerated, so I guess it's understandable that all each of the psychiatrists are unreferred to by a single capital letter, and they don't relate back to their surnames or anything. So they were protected in that. So it's a little bit of a detective work required to try and track down who that might be. We're going to try and reach out to do that. What we've been talking about actually on this podcast prior to this conversation, the police's revelation really that they don't intend to put any more appeals out to the public. They don't really intend to do anything else, really, I don't think, in terms of the, uh, the Fred case. I've got, I mean, kind of got two minds about that in terms of how I feel about that. I mean, what's your initial, initial thoughts or initial reactions to hearing the police say, we're not doing any, any more appeals on this? Well, instinctively, you go, Really, you're going to give up when you haven't found the murderer. But if you think about it, anybody that the police might be able to talk to who was directly involved, I mean, they must be at, at least in their 70s now, I would have thought. Yeah. I can kind of understand why they don't want to be 
diverting resources when there's so much other stuff that they've got to get on top of that is current or more recent. Uh, and it's not as if they haven't periodically reviewed this case. I think the case will always remain open. It's quite exciting, isn't it, that it's probably down to us or people like us to get interested enough to do some more digging and to, and try and put some theories together that, that fit the set of circumstances. I think so. I mean, the only there's only two ways this is going to get resolved now. Either somebody goes to the police as deathbed confession and says, oh, I've been meaning to tell you this for the last 40 years, 50 years, this is what happened. That isn't going to happen, but it, it could happen, I suppose. Uh, and the only other way is through our endeavours, for us finding something which is so strong in terms of a, a lead uh, that that there, there would be a dereliction of duty on the police's part if they didn't follow it up. So that's what we've got to focus our attention on. Well, I think there's a, third, there's a third option there, Ken, which might happen in 20, 25 years' time, which is the child of somebody makes a deathbed confession about what their father told them. Uh, and, of course, what, what we're doing now is hopefully probing and tracking down people, connections of the people who were who were there to be able to talk to that sort of person so that they can tell us what their parents have told them. Can I just add, anybody who's interested, that one of my jumpers, I'm not talking about the woolly one that I got for Christmas. You wanted a tip, didn't you? Yeah. Um, one of my horses is called Apple Away. Apple Away? Mm-hmm. One, one on its debut, 11 to 1. Oh. Yeah. So it's entered to run at Carlisle mm. next Thursday. Apple mm-hmm. away. Second time out, there's a tip, and that would be a good price. So that's almost like free money, isn't it, in the podcast? <laughs> no, I would keep your stakes small. <laughs> Apple away, it is next Thursday, the 20th of October. Well, we look forward to that. Uh, mate, okay, brilliant. Thanks for that. Thanks for the tip. And uh, we will catch up again soon. Good stuff. See you soon, Bonnie Lad. Thanks for listening to the podcast. So it looks like it's going to be down to us to try to get to the bottom of this and give Fred his real identity back. A couple of things to mention. Over the last few months, we as a team have been trying to put these podcasts out whilst at the same time being extraordinarily busy with work. Joe, Ian and myself. It's been very difficult, I have to tell you. The good news, certainly from my perspective, is that from the start of November, a big project that I've been working on for months is complete. And I, therefore, will have a lot more time to spend on Fred, which feels really good. A couple of people to mention this week. I'm always amazed at the effort that people make to analyse the case and contact me and share their ideas and theories and the detail that they go into to develop those theories. It's really appreciated. So a big thank you to Cheyenne Kiernan for sending me a very interesting synopsis of her ideas of the case last week. And there's a lot for me to go through there, but I definitely will get back to Cheyenne. So thanks again. And secondly, thanks to John Clark for listening. I had the pleasure of meeting John last week in Burton. He's one of those inspirational people you, you come across very rarely. John's a bit of a legend, I think, to people who know him. And it means a great deal to me 
that he listens to the podcast and that he enjoys the podcast. And John, it was great to meet you last week, so thanks for listening. Now, it doesn't seem like we're going to get the police on the podcast anytime soon, but there was one other person that I was very keen to interview, and that was a lady called Helen Kreft. You will have heard me mention her a few times before throughout the podcast. She's the senior reporter with the Burton Mail, who has covered this case for years and years. And I've been liaising with Helen in relation to the isotope analysis campaign. And you remember I wrote an article that Helen's going to use in a few weeks' time. So I thought it was about time I spoke to Helen on the record and had a conversation with her about her thoughts on the case. Well, I'm very lucky this morning because I'm joined by Helen Kreft, and Helen Kreft's the senior reporter at Burton Mail, and she's been at Fred the Head far longer than I ever have. So uh, good morning, Helen. How, how are you on Saturday morning? I am very well. It's a very nice day today, so <laughs> that's good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. But I'm very keen to speak to you on a number of things, actually. In fact, I've been, I've been keen to get you on the podcast for a long time. So... I'm interested to know how, how you first got involved in this, because you were involved in this way before me. And I remember when I first started the podcast, you were the one of the first person I ever spoke to about it. So mm-hmm. I'm interested to know how, how you came across this Fred case. I've been at the Burton Mail 15 years now. So I think I knew about the Fred the Head case for about 15 years. Um, wow. It's always been it's always been like a, a major story for us um, over the years for a number of many many reasons one the fact it's still unsolved he hasn't been identified even the way he the way he was found obviously that conjures up a lot of um questions just a lot of unanswered questions so it's always been something that uh, we've always wanted to find out um it's produced many stories over the years biggest one being well i suppose biggest one being when he was found but for us in the later times um the crime watch appeals um he's been featured on crime watch quite a few times um and Great, yeah and each time um there's been something that's come back from it i think the 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 last one is um they thought it could have been uh, someone that had gone missing in the UK um, and family had come forward, but unfortunately or fortunately um, ruled him out. Um, this so, was the guy from North Wales, wasn't it, I think? This yeah, that was it, Wales, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the the mystery continues. So it was, a, it was um, I think we were all in the news office quite hopeful when it could have been the possibility of this guy from Wales Um which kind of sort of shows the shows the feeling that we want this we want this case solved, you know, for for Fred the Head, for the police, for Fred's family, you know, if they're still alive, maybe his friends. There is someone in the world that knows this guy or knew this guy and is missing this guy, you know. Hundred percent. Yeah, um, he had parents, which I they're probably you know long gone now, but. He could have had siblings. He certainly would have possibly had friends, people he knew about. Um, and I imagine they are wondering where he is for the for the last, well, since 1971 now. Yes, because you're in a unique position because the Burton Air was very widely read around the area. I know that. And so you you are right at the focal point, maybe, of the community in that sense. So 
I mean, what have you picked up in terms of the community's feelings about this case? I'm interested in how, how crime affects the local town and things. I mean, what, what kind of uh, feedback have you had uh, in terms of what's going on in relation to Fred? I think crime in general, because Burton is quite a small town, maybe compared to other places in the UK, when something like this happens, just shock all over the community is like, you know, how, how can this happen in Burton? And obviously with Fred the Head, it just seemed crazy the way the way he was found. Um, the fact he was buried for so the fact he was buried, the, the, the way he was found buried, kneeling position and, you know, hands and hands behind his back, that kind of thing, and naked. Um, you just you just kind of wonder what's what's going on there and I, while I can't speak for uh, when we published this information in 1971 I, I imagine you know back in 1971 it was probably even more shocking than it would have possibly been now um, certainly for Burton um, but I think as time time goes on that shock hasn't hasn't left Burton you know I'm there's always uh, what people read how he was found there's always shock there's always confusion and there's always questions what what was going on why on earth was he found like that every 10 years it kind of probably because the crime watch things it kind of raises its head it becomes a thing a whole new generation of people who didn't know anything about it suddenly know something about it and that kind of rolls on over and over again doesn't it Every, every 10 years or so yeah, certainly with Crime Watch, there's always when that's published uh, aired, there's always a, a big strong feeling about what happened, you know, all over the UK. As a reporter at the Burt Mail, as you say, I'm in the u- unique position of of trying to keep this story alive. It so so we can find out who who he was, you know, maybe we can get the story uh, globally, you know, certainly it's gone across the UK, and um, certainly it's probably everyone in Burton knows a bit about Fred the Head. Um, it would be nice to get that story out a lot more, um, certainly because, as we'll probably discuss in a bit, I don't think he was from Burton. The most recent thing, and I think I, I'm really interested in your view on, is because I'd sent you this article about this call for isotopic analysis, which I still think is absolutely essential, and that kind of generated a series of correspondence with the police, which I've shared with you. And one of the most, perhaps the most striking thing on that piece of correspondence is that it sounds like there'll be no more crime watches. There'll be no more appeals. If something comes up, they'll follow it. But they're not going to do anything proactive anymore, is what I'm reading into that. But I'm interested to see how you, what your view is, having seen those emails and reading between the lines of those emails I mean what do you think now is the kind of police position and I know you can't speak for them but what is your view on the police position going forward mm. I think when we've done stories sort of more recently about this um as well as the sort of shock and sadness that he hasn't been found a lot of a lot of we find a lot of people say well perhaps police should be investigating other crimes that are a lot more recent where the murderer will still be alive and people will be still looking for these people um so 
I, c- I can understand that the police want to focus on more recent crimes. Um, but from maybe their point of view, he still he still remains their longest unsolved murder, longest unsolved case in Staffordshire Police, in Staffordshire area. So from that point of view, from, from the police, it would be nice for them to put this to bed and finally solve solve it. Um, I suppose without the, the Crime Watch appeals, um, it's less likely because, as I mentioned before, they um, Crime Watch appeals generate a lot of interest and a lot of hope among people. Um, but I can understand from the, the police point of view that they need to concentrate on re- more recent crimes. I mean, I'd, what I'd like to say, I mean, I suppose to me, to be fair, you're, you're um, sort of the latest detective on it. Um, it'd be nice to have uh, someone, maybe a private investigator or something that has links to the police, that they'd be able to have on board and solely look at this case. Um, I think with someone like that and the fact that they would have a lot of access to the police, that might help a lot. Yeah. Um, but with without police interaction and help, um, it'd be less likely that he would be identified. And if he's not identified, his killers are still out there or have got away with it. Yeah, uh, someone's got away with murder. Absolutely no question. Someone's got away with murder. Well, that's yeah. interesting. I think you're right as well. I think I think really the only source for the police of new new lines of inquiry where the appeals i don't think anything else is coming from anywhere else so without those appeals that effectively stops one day helen you'll win a pulitzer prize for solving them <laughs> I, I think i think it will be you to be fair you've done a hell of a lot of uh, of work on this a hell of a lot over well, the years well, we'll, well between we'll share it so i am though going to ask you to put your miss markle pose on uh and uh just kind of give you what your thoughts are. I know you can't know any more than me or anyone else, but but it's always interesting to get people's, particularly people who have been around the case for as long as you have, really, their view on what they think the evidence points to. So if you were writing the final chapter of this book, what do you, what, what do you reckon's in that final chapter? Mm. I think I'm going purely on the, the way he was found. And the fact that no one has come forward to positively identify him over the, since 1971, I think it was political. <clears throat> Certainly, I, I believe that he he wasn't from this local area. I think maybe he had been living here for a couple of months because his socks were bought from Burton Market. Probably where they were certainly for sale on Burton Market. Yeah, so I mean, he could he could have been here if he bought them. He could have been bought them from Burton. He could have been here for a couple of months. I certainly don't think he he'd been here very long, um, and that's that's based on the fact that no one has come forward. Obviously, it was very heavily advertised in the Burton Mail back when it was back when he was found. Um, and so, if he was from this area, he'd have family. They would come forward, and he would be identified within days. That hasn't happened. We're still, you know, decades on now. So I think he was from another country. I think he was from somewhere in Europe, maybe a bit further away. 
may be involved in something political, um, a war, some disagreement, or it could be part of a, a gang warfare, you know, um, that we don't know about. He could have fled that country and for some reason come to Burton to work. Someone caught up with him, found him, and um, he was executed. I think I believe the way the way the guy was buried, kneeling position, naked, um, hands tied behind his back, it was an execution, I think. And if it was an execution, I think it was I think it was political or it was gang warfare. It's interesting that he's there's no obvious wounds. No. Now, now that doesn't mean he couldn't be executed because someone could put a bag over his head. Yeah. And you could kill him that way, and that would no leave no obvious wounds. Clearly, he wasn't shot in the back of the head. He wasn't stabbed. He wasn't any of those things. No. Uh, but he it probably was asphyxiated. Uh, yeah. And yeah, he, he was tied up. He couldn't resist. There was four people around him. He he could easily have been asphyxiated in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the more likely. There was no there was no head wounds found. Would be the most plausible cause. Back to something, Helen, before we move on on that. I mean, do you agree with me or disagree with me that the person who buried him, who killed him and who buried him, knew that site? Or do you think it was a just a randomly selected site that that person killed and buried him at? Um, I don't know, because I think he could have... Um, been found by these people and run away and there was some kind of chase and that's randomly where they ended up um, it could all I mean if that's not the case then obviously he was brought to that site because it was kind of hidden away quite isolated um, not many um, places around where you could hear a scream or something like that so if that was the case, if he was brought there then certainly someone who, well, the person who bought him there maybe knew the local area or perhaps they were driving by and thought, hmm, you know, that looks like a, a good area. We'll, we'll go there. Um, I don't know whether you could see it from, from the road at that point or it's certainly the, the area from that point. Not really. Not, not really back then. The only, <laughs> the only ways on were over the bridge that was there at the time, but that was locked. Or going off the little road that is called... Uh, Meadow Road, yeah. yeah off, off the bridge. And, and that if you're going in the car, that's that's where you'll go. Well, that's interesting. Really interesting. So... I mean, with, I mean, with regards to a long, long walk to the site, um, he could have been bundled in a, the back of a boot of a car. Oh, he could, 100%. You can get down there on a, in a car. You yeah. can, definitely. Which makes me think, if he was killed elsewhere, and there's, and there's a good chance he was, and his, that's why his clothes weren't there. His clothes were somewhere else. Tied up, put in the back, taken there. I'm working on the basis, no, no certainty in this, but I'm working on the basis that, that those people knew that site. And had already prepared that site, already, if not physically, mentally prepared, that's where we're, that's where we're taking it. Okay. Uh, but but that is, that's interesting. I, I, I definitely would agree with your thoughts that He's not a local man. He's probably a foreigner. Something was going on that we don't know about. 
there was a disagreement, political crime gang. We don't know, but there's definitely a disagreement with some people who were probably around here. Mm, yeah, there was. I mean, I've looked um, before um, on sort of uh, wars across the world that were going on in sort of 1969, 1970, when we think he might have been killed. Um, and there wasn't anything, well, I mean, obviously there, there's always some conflict going on, um, but there wasn't anything particularly standout, major. So it could have been some sort of like hidden political agenda of something, you know, keeping someone quiet about something, perhaps. And the only thing that, I, that was going on was in 1968, the Russia moved into Czechoslovakia, Prague yes. Spring, and yeah. quite a few Czechs got out. Yeah, I think it was about 70,000 have yeah. fled, fled the country, yeah. which he could have been one of them. Yeah, that, I, I'm starting to think that might be the case, particularly remember that that ring, that, that wedding ring, mm. on Wright's wedding ring finger, which is an indicator of Central European and Eastern European yeah. uh, marriages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's why I think that he was he was in the area for a little a little bit potentially a sort of a migrant worker mm. maybe working at one of the breweries or somewhere nearby for a couple of months um and then was found um colleagues who knew him probably wouldn't have known him that well and then if he'd not turned up to work one day they'd have just assumed that he'd, he'd moved on and they would have forgotten about him you said something interesting there Helen uh, you said lots of interesting things actually but a particular thing just just struck me then when you were talking we've always focused on the mill the mill that's right next to where mm -hmm. he's buried yeah uh, but actually the more likely scenario if that person was working in burton in 1969 is actually the breweries yeah, and yeah. i mean obviously he could, he could have been working at the mill you know I, I don't know um their sort of situation with getting migrant workers in for a temporary basis um but i mean the more likely possibility, given how big the brewing industry is in Burton, and it was obviously at that time as well, um, it could be more likely that he was involved in the brewery industry in some some way. Well, statistically, it is going to be more likely, because if the mill was employing 30 people, the breweries yeah. are employing 10,000 people. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So it could have been him. And obviously, because those breweries were massive, Someone, someone not turning up to work that, that day would have probably gone relatively unnoticed, I think. That is very true. The other thing which is interesting is that Czechoslovakia had a very significant brewing industry. Still does, you know, Pilsner, Czechoslovakia. So if someone was coming from Czechoslovakia who, just, or who happened to have some brewing skills, they'd end up here. Yeah, yeah. They would, they would do. I mean, Burton's sort of well known around the world, and at that point, you know, also for for, for brewing. So they could have, they could have ended up here. Maybe been maybe been told by a friend, you know, you've you've fled your country, you've got some background in brewing. Burton is maybe the place to go. Um, and also, it's sort of in the middle of the country. It's not on a coast. So if you're coming from abroad to find someone, it would be more difficult to find someone in Burton than it would, you know, on, on the coast where it'd be nearby. That makes sense. And you've also meant you've also mentioned um before, like obviously lots of lots of theories, one of them being Anthony Hardy. Yeah. Um I mean that could be another possibility, but I think 
I mean, he, stop me if I'm completely wrong, but he killed two women. Three. Three women. I think it would be unlikely if he was, you know, uh, that way inclined with, with women, it'd be unlikely that he would have started off with a man. So in, in that respect, I mean, I, you know, I, again, it's just a theory. In that respect, I don't, I don't think it was was him. Certainly, he had a, a knowledge of Burton, but I think it would be unlikely that it would be him. Um, I think more from from my point of view, it would be political. I, think. I, I really appreciate that. That's really an interesting perspective on it, and one that we probably need to develop a lot further, actually, in terms of uh, where we take our bit of the investigation. Helen, I really appreciate that. That's been a really interesting conversation. I've enjoyed that. Stay doing what you do, you know. You, you, <laughs> and uh, you, and you, you do a a, a, a massive uh, a massive job. Um, and you know, I'm sure Fred's family and Fred will thank you for it a lot. To, you know, the fact that this hasn't been forgotten. The fact is, Helen, I wouldn't have got into this unless I'd read your report, and uh, I only found the whole case because of the work you've done. So, it is a chain of uh, uh, work. So I'm grateful that you did that. And uh, I'm very grateful for the time you spent this morning with me. That's okay. Um, so just to let you know what I'm doing next on it is um, I'm about to send out some um, emails to various <clears throat> newspapers across Europe, France, Germany, for example, Czechoslovakia as well. Um, yeah, this is just to say, you know, this is something that we had in 1971. We believe it. It could have been from your country. You know, maybe we'll get some family coming forward if they publish it. So we'll see where we go. But certainly I think it's a, a European case and not a Burton case. Well, obviously it was found in Burton, but I don't think it was from Burton. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, well, all power to you doing that. And uh, keep me posted. I'd, I'd love to find out, and the podcast would love to find out exactly what happens from that. Brilliant. Thanks for your time, Helen. Yes, no problem. I'll uh, I'll let you know how I get on. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Helen. All right. Cheers. Bye. So maybe Helen, using her journalistic contacts, may unearth something on the continent that will shine fresh light on the case. That'll be a very interesting thing to catch up on in a few weeks. I'm also intrigued by this political assassination idea she mentioned. Seems a bit far-fetched for Burton, but they did happen. And they have to happen somewhere. Maybe this links into Frank Kuhn, the multilinguist Hungarian working at the mill, who very rapidly disappeared around the time of the murder, and who seemed to know everyone from an Eastern European background. Maybe it's time to talk to Zoe again. I've always been interested in Frank Kuhn. How he managed to escape the Iron Curtain after the war. Not many people did that. Anyway, food for thought. But that's for next time. So, until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>